In times where we are increasingly conscious about being fair to as many people as possible and treating people with respect and adhering to a set of unspoken, or in some cases spoken very loudly, principles which ensure virtuous communication, I think brands are more increasingly concerned about putting their foot in their mouth or doing something wrong. Hello, podcast listener. This is Omar Oaks, editor of The Media Leader. That voice you just heard was Omnicom's head of futures, Phil Rowley, who joined me to talk about the value of media predictions and how to develop a muscle, as he calls it, for seeing what's coming down the road in advertising, tech and innovation. I mean, you'll hear it for yourself, but Phil is wise and really worth listening to. He appeared on a panel recently at Future of Media, our flagship conference in London last month, and he was part of this fantastic panel about predictions for 2030. Um, I'm almost certain I'm going to put out that panel on the podcast and our YouTube channel soon. Phil has begun writing for us on The Media Leader as a regular columnist about guess what? The future of media. It's kind of our thing. Um, But before we dive into that and the interview, please let me know what you think of this podcast, either by commenting on social media or emailing me directly. Email address omar.oaks at uk.adwanted.com. I'll leave that in the notes as well. I'll give myself a lot to write. Um, This is obviously a new show we're putting together and we want to make sure it's interesting and valuable to people working in commercial media or frankly anyone who's interested in the media side of advertising, publishing, journalism and business. This is kind of like season one of the Media Leader podcast. Then we're probably going to take a little break towards the end of December and into January because big news, I'm going on paternity leave. Um, Omar Jr. is due around Christmas time. That should be fun, spending Christmas in a hospital. No, I joke, I joke. But um, maybe I should do a podcast from home with a screaming baby in the background. Maybe maybe it could be one of the spin-offs we've been talking about. Um, so just note that. Stay tuned for season two, beginning of next year. And also a date for your diary. The future of Audio Europe is coming back in 2022. Join us in London in February for another day of insight and discussion about where radio, podcasts and audio streaming are heading. The Future of Audio Europe 2023. I'll post a link in the show notes, but if you Google MediaTel events, Future of Audio Europe, you can find out more information. So now on to the interview. You'll hear Phil Rowley, head of futures at Omnicom Media Group. And the first question I asked him was, how did you get into this job and what exactly do you do? Um, well, great question. Um, I actually got um, trolled on uh, LinkedIn because of my job title. Somebody once said, who put you in charge of my future? Which I thought was a really interesting comment, assuming that perhaps I had more power than I actually did. Um, so my career is... Um, I started off about 20 years ago in Drum, which is Omnicom and still is a content arm, um, and switched to digital around uh, 2010, 2011, um, before becoming an innovation director on uh, Unilever and VW Group, and then 
in 2020, around about the time that uh, the pandemic kicked off, I became head of futures and there was something I didn't foresee, a pandemic. Um, so my career is broadly in digital and innovation, but the role at the moment to answer your question is really um, ensuring that we get our clients to the future faster. And when we talk about things that are coming down the track and the things that um, clients should be aware of um, in the future, um, um, that we make it actionable and tangible and real and plausible in the now. So we always say to them, we do the wow and we tell them about this, you know, what's coming down the track in five to 10 years, but we also do um, the how and we also do the now. So it's really about making sure that we're actioning the future in the present. And what does that mean in practice? Do you, do you have regular meetings with clients where you, you discuss future-facing th- future things? Um, do you write reports? How does it actually work in practice? If, if I'm, let, let's pretend I'm your client right now. Tell me about the future. <laughs> well, there's a lot of it. So I couldn't tell you about all of it, um, Omar. Uh, the, the answer to your question is we have three things that we do. The first thing is thought leadership. And that is about tell me about the future. We have um, um, big reports on the future of gaming, the future of the metaverse, the future of well-being, the future of transport, the future of sustainable business as it should be um, um, considered within the context of branding and advertising. So we have that. That's the first thing. The second thing is we have some tech outreach programs. So we're talking to some really interesting startups in the space that we think could form the basis or become part of um, a brand's campaign, Um, um, you know, a line item in in its most crudest sense alongside their TV and outdoor, but much more integrated into their campaign. We've talked to some really interesting startups and edge technologies. Um, But the third thing is really more about um, innovation, innovation accelerator programs, which brings together that that um, that thought leadership makes it actionable, but also um, finds opportunities for those co- companies and those startups to be used in, in a, an innovation roadmap process or system um, where we get again we get our, aim to get our clients up to speed faster by redefining what we consider innovation to be um, and ensuring that we embed a series of best practices within um, companies in order that they're not intimidated by innovation um, and they can implement it in a really accessible and affordable way. Because as no doubt we will come on to speak, I think, talk about, I think innovation is seen as um, in some cases a shining city on the hill that is ultimately good to talk about, but not actually achievable um, for many brands, or at least they feel that it's not achievable. And that's partly due to a misdefinition or a misframing of what we consider innovation to be. And it's really about addressing that and getting them up to speed much faster than they ever thought possible. And it really, really works. We've had some real success with clients doing that. Okay, well, let's get into that. You you recently wrote a piece for us as part of um, a, a series of future pieces that you're going to write write as a regular columnist for the media leader about predictions, the future of media, what people should be looking out for, um, perhaps even a bit of sorting the wheat from the chaff. There's so much noise when it comes to predictions and prognostications in media. And you've made this point that even if these predictions don't turn out to be correct, they're still really valuable. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, so I think that we we are obsessed with predictions as an agency, and we're certainly obsessed with these sort of tech prophecies. And 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 marketeers are, uh, you know, increasingly uh, clamouring for those as a way of trying to uh, hijack some of those sort of futuristic credentials. You know, if they talk about things that are futuristic and they mention them in meetings, and there is at least a perfunctory uh, desire to somehow 
incorporate them, that that will uh, demonstrate a certain level of awareness and credentials and expertise. But the reality is because so many innovations fail um, um, to be embedded in the client, within clients and so many predictions um, fail that um, there's a tendency to perhaps get, get um, disillusioned with innovation very, very quickly. But my point in the article that I wrote is, is that it's not about getting things right. It's not about putting your chips on one number in the casino. It's about actually learning how the casino works. And the act of putting those chips and putting bets on will show you or develop the skill set to be able to understand what you need to do as a business to develop a sense of agility and also the importance of long-term planning to make sure that you can um, make better use of those predictions in, in the long run. So I'm again, to, to, as an example, um, I mentioned in the article when Kevin Kelly talks about nobody ever can tell you when when the rain is hitting a windscreen nobody can tell you which direction each individual drop um, is going down but you can say that the general even though you can't predict the path of every raindrop the general direction of the rain is down uh, and so you know generally where things are heading um, and that will help you prepare um, so it, again to sort of his second example is we always um, anticipated you know thousands of songs uh, within the palm of our hand even though we didn't um, specifically anticipate the iPod in particular and it's about ensuring that we don't um, try to say, I'm going to put all my money into building, um, um, uh, you know, a uh, virtual layer over Pokemon Go, because that's a very specific prediction about what you think will actually um, explode and do the brand well. It's about reversing from that uh, out of that and taking a God's eye view of the much bigger macro tectonic shift within technology, media and marketing in order that you can prepare for them with a lot more time in hand. And, you know, people like Kodak and Nokia um, and, and uh, Blockbuster, it strikes me, it, didn't, it wasn't that they were just simply caught out. I'm not sure that they had the mechanism to respond. And that is what's important about predictions. It's developing your sort of your muscle for agility and your ability to respond to changes rather than actually winning, as in getting putting your money on the right horse, so to speak. Yeah. And um, obviously, um, talk about put somebody putting their chips on something. Um, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook or Meta, as we're legally bound to call them nowadays, Meta, um, he's you know, putting a, a huge amount of chips on um, the so-called metaverse. Um, I think, you know, if whether you call it R&D or capital expenditure, they're, they're investing more than the rest of big tech combined. I think it already dwarfs what the, the amount of um, R&D that went into the iPhone. It's a huge amount of money that he's betting on. Do you think that as you, your, your analogy about the raindrops going in a certain direction, I mean, it seems like to the outside world, like that is a very big bet on a certain range of products working. But do you think it will have ancillary benefits that actually we might, that Facebook as a company, it might lead to something more profound or useful than just, you know, going to work in your VR universe? Well, I think it's interesting because... I slightly challenge the premise of the question because I think in latter uh, months, I think Facebook or Meta, as we are legally required to call them, have hedged their bets slightly. Um, there are um, moves afoot to broaden 
I think that their their um, their focus on VR to broader in, into sort of AR and MR mixed reality as well. And they have something called Project Cambrian, which is uh, their attempt at sort of that at that MR or AR, mixed reality augmented reality space. And they're also working on camera pass throughs, which means that effectively the, the 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 VR helmet that you're looking at will have a camera on the front, so you can overlay the real world within your helmet. So you're you're doubling the use cases of, of the helmet. So the answer, I'm not sure about ancillary benefit, but what I am sure about is that, they, that they've not put all their chips in, in, um, on, on one number. They've actually spread a few elsewhere because I think they potentially know where Apple are going on this. And Apple, I think, are going into the AR, MR space and are not bothering with VR. And I think that split between Cook and Zuckerberg is really interesting. And it's pulled some of the R&D over from, um, from VR into AR. And don't forget, AR already had something called Spark, which was their augmented reality um, production studio modeling tool as well. So, yes, he is putting a heck of a lot of money into one avenue, but he still has other options if it looks like he's back to the wrong horse to continue the uh, the sporting analogy. Yeah, and that that's a very real example of, um, you know, someone um, trying, trying to make their future, as it were. But um, going back to when actually um, comes to predicting, predicting the future, um, I guess sometimes, you know, in the media, pointing at myself here, you know, we, we, we sometimes treat this as a performative activity, don't we? Um, where we kind of all think, well, it doesn't really matter about, you know, whether these predictions turn out to be right or wrong. I, I can just get a really good entertaining article about it. And in a couple of months, it'll be January and there's going to be, you know, Wired Magazine will have their usual kind of top predictions of the year, their usual features feature everyone does it do you ever go back on old predictions and see how right you were and maybe you know if nothing else what you can learn from the things you weren't right about Yes, actually, one of the first pieces that we wrote at the beginning of, uh, of lockdown was something called New Horizons, where we uh, talked about what we thought would happen post-COVID. Um, and I think, to, to, to my mind, there were 17 predictions, don't ask me to, or 17 prognostications, don't ask me to recall every single one of those. But I know that a few of them that we, that we, that we got dead on, but there were ones that we didn't get dead on, and, and just to sort of share those openly. And we predicted that um, streaming wars would result in, a, 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 I suppose, a diversification of Funding model, and uh, lo and behold, two and a half years later, we see Netflix moving into the um, into the ad space, as in the paid for spot space, um, which we did actually, um, which 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 we did actually think about. But something which um, I th- predicted, which I got wrong, was that I thought we would have. Uh, a return to legitimate expertise. And when people like Dr. Fauci and Chris Whitty and Patrick Vallance became public figures um, as um, figureheads of, uh, of, of science and knowledge and learning and reason, I uh, wrongly predicted that I thought that, you know, they would become like the new rock stars and, and we would might see a shift back towards people who could, um, who actually knew something about their subject. But in reality, what happened was, is that the fact that they knew about their subject was used as a weapon against them um, in the sense that they were positioned as oppressors using their, um, using their shadowy public uh, um uh, shadow public uh, personas to um, you know issue edicts which were unchallengeable from the position of authority, and I, and I think that I got that wrong. So the answer to that is yes. And there was this exact uh, um, piece that, that that we did that we revisited and found that on that basis. That's an interesting example. Um, more generally, do you think it's becoming harder or maybe easier to predict what's going to happen next in media? 
Um, I actually don't think it's changed. I, I, um, you know, I, I think that it's, it, it's less about whether things are harder or easier to predict. Um, it's more about um, how we respond um, to our, um, how we, how do we have the ability to re to respond to the predictions as the as the waves hit the shore and we see them develop? Do we actually have the facility to be able to react and respond? So it's less about the difficulty in prediction because it doesn't matter if it's any easier or any harder. Um, the reality is it's all about the inertia and the um, and the uh, the ability and the, the flexibility and the agility of companies to respond. That seems to me the more important thing, if I'm honest. Mm. I'm wondering, is there a method or a science in the business of making predictions? I imagine, obviously, you, you have to read a lot, consume a lot of information. Um, but is there actually a, a process that one could go through to get better at it? How do, how do I get better at making predictions? <laughs> um, well, first of all, I think it's to... Um, maybe not KPI your predictions on the basis of how right they are. Again, that seems to be counterproductive because, you know, the person that starts getting predictions right um, is, is the person that's going to make millions and billions of, 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 of dollars. Um, I don't think anybody has a fully functioning crystal ball and it's less about getting things right. As I mentioned, it's more about the ability to, um, it's the, about the ability to uh, put yourself in a position where you can respond to the things, want, to respond to certain predictions once you think that they might be might be coming in um there is no um official i suppose maths behind um um uh, predicting the future unfortunately otherwise we, we'd all we'd all be on it uh, and you know there's plenty of literature out there to suggest that um city traders that um take uh, historical records in order to predict how things will uh, are going to unfold from, from a stock market point of view are invariably wrong because there's always some kind of element of chaos thrown in um, some random factor some unpredictable butterfly wings that create the tornado which render any kind of uh, um, uh, prediction or prognostication completely uh, um, null and void. Again, it's just more about that idea of being in a position to flex the muscle to understand what a potential changes might mean to you and have the facility to respond and and and, um, and react to that. Yeah, um, it reminds me of um, um, many years ago when um, I I did a degree in economics, and um, I wasn't as good as math as I needed to be to do really well on it. But there's something um, about economics in terms of when you study it, you do develop a sort of mental framework, which is really interesting that it's nothing like I'd ever experienced when I was at school in terms of it's all about using scientific methods to explain human behavior and how to manage resources. And you get into this mode of thinking, well, if this thing changes, and it's usually something like interest rates go up, for example, what effect is that going to have on the wider economy? Well, it's going to lead to, you know, people demanding, um, it's going to lead to mortgage rates going up, which may kind of depress consumer demand, which may lead to this happening, which may lead to that happening. Um, and it's a really interesting kind of, once you've been doing economics for a while, your, your thought, your, your, the, you can almost feel the brain chemistry evolving to think in this certain way. Um, do, do you think there's any sort of academic training that helps people kind of develop that muscle, as you call it? Um, there, there are places which are, are um, consider themselves to be institutes of the future or, uh, or uh, you know, um, macroeconomic forecasters. And of course, they're working on spreadsheets and maths and previous statistics and numbers uh, and databases and graphs and pie charts and all the rest of it. Um, 
but often um, I think that that takes a, that um, that doesn't solve, I suppose, for a wider issue. It reduces it to quite a mechanical and a rather numerical and mechanistic way of doing it. Obviously, evidence and statistics are important and we rely on the foresight and the the calculations of others but i think there's something to be said which i'm not sure can be taught omar which is the ability to weave that into a narrative which is actually significant and meaningful for clients to be able to understand the implications and the actions that they required for them in the short term um and, and that um, i suppose is a, 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 an issue that i have a, with a lot of let's say, more harder science-based predictions um, that I've seen, which is that it doesn't really tell you what to do. It only tells you um, what, um, I, I suppose it tells you what the weather might be, but it doesn't tell you what to, what to pack for your holidays uh, into your suitcase. So, yeah. so, um, so that element, I think, um, is where you have to bring in other disciplines like strategy and I hate to use the word, but storytelling because it's just a really abused term. But um, that that side of, of, of that part of it where you where you where you tr- transform it into implications is something which must come from hard data and learning and insight. Um, but I'm not sure that's something that you can teach. So there's a hard science element a quantitative element, but there's also a qualitative element, which I think you just need to develop a nose for over time in the way that a strategist might or a or creative director might. Um, we're, of course, speaking a few days into the Elon Musk regime over at Twitter. Something very interesting. Regime? Some very, <laughs> some very interesting things have been happening. Um, what was your prediction for Twitter based on what you've seen so far of the Musk era? Oh, goodness me. That's a big question. Um, I, th- I think it will go one of two ways. I think, first of all, people will leave. Um, so, you know, a, a portion will leave uh, of people that feel that um, Elon is too far aligned with uh, free, street, free speech libertarianism to the point where uh, the platform will be uh, denigrated. Um, and that will make advertisers sit up and won't, won't worry about what their content will be seen next to. Uh, I mean, Twitter is already a little bit of a minefield. You know, there are already moderation um, uh, programs in process or moderation processes that you can see in operation, fact-checking and shadow banning and and all the rest of it. Um, I'm not sure that what would improve Twitter is less of that, if I'm honest. And so advertisers that may have been previously wary of Twitter and may want to assure that there is brand safety, um, I think would be slightly concerned about that there would be even more of a slack on the on the platform and if indeed people are leaving um and it's not going to obviously you know twitter's not going to go from however many billion reach down to zero but it's going to start chipping away and advertisers um advertisers uh, um start to get a bit concerned and i think we'll see a, an initial dip it's what happens from there. Will any mitigation, um, mitigating actors will be taken? Will will um, Elon respond and try and bring advertisers back with in, uh, with um, uh, concessions or alterations um, or changes of course? And if so, then Twitter may be restored in some form. However, if he holds fast, he might find that um, it's standing within the social media world becomes a little bit more eroded over time. I'm not saying it's going to end up uh, like truth social within the first three months because it 
that, that it's not possible. But I think that, you know, soon after um, whatever changes he brings in, we will be at a fork in the road. And that will be an interesting um, to see whether scenario A or scenario B plays out. Yeah, I think um, I think it goes back to your, your your point at the start about how it's not necessarily whether your predictions are right or wrong. It's it's how you make the predictions. And I think I can draw a parallel to Elon Musk in terms of it's not necessarily how you change things. It's not necessarily what you change at Twitter as much as it's how you do it. So maybe on day one, don't tweet a load of misinformation about Nancy Pelosi's husband, who was... Husband, yeah. There was an attempted murder. It's awful. Um, Maybe don't put out loads of stuff about free speech, as you say, without actually consulting people. Put, you know, say various things about how many people you're going to get rid of. Don't bait your power users as well. Don't bait them. You know, he's been really prodding Stephen King and um, and AOC. It's just complete clownish behaviour. And you know, we've we've you know we've seen reports this week about advertisers um, possibly already kind of pausing their ad spend, which isn't going to be a lot, let's be honest, in the grand scheme of things. But nevertheless, pausing ad spend on Twitter. Um, do you think? But this is a very kind of unusual example of a media owner potentially imploding under, you know, this this man's behaviour. But more generally, you know, I made a point in my column earlier this week that more generally things haven't changed fundamentally about Twitter or social media. You raised, you know, you, you mentioned brand safety before. You're never going to be 100% brand safe on social media because that's the nature of the platform. It's unmoderated user-generated media. That's that's the name of the game. Um, and I don't think the penny has dropped, frankly, for a lot of advertisers who are expecting broadcast-style brand safety. Um, do, you, do you think brands generally are just too risk-averse or maybe have become more risk-averse in this, this increasingly online world? I wouldn't want to speak for all brands, um, but certainly I know that... Um, um, some of the brands that we um, work on are extraordinarily um, um, brand uh, safety aware, shall we say. And I think, and I word this extremely carefully so that I don't um, make it sound like I've, I'm on the wrong side of history here or that people think that I've misaligned my political opinions. But in times where we are increasingly conscious about being fair to as many people as possible and treating people with respect, and adhering to a set of unspoken, or in some cases spoken very loudly, principles um, which ensure virtuous communication, I think, yes, brands are more increasingly concerned about putting their foot in their mouth or doing something wrong, whether it be the use of a word which is offended or or accusations of greenwashing or or, or finger-pointing over maybe something which could be considered cultural appropriation. Of course, they're extremely sensitive to um, what somebody might consider to be, how do I put this, somebody on the opposing side of the fence might consider to be the Twitter mob, just to use it as an example, which I know I wouldn't align with that side of, uh, of the debate. But so, yes, I think they are perhaps a bit more risk averse to from a content moderation point of view. In terms of how risk averse they are to embracing new forms of technology and new innovations and new formats, um, it's unfortunately it's exactly the same as it always is, which is they're extremely interested and they want to know about it and they get very excited. And then very, very quickly, um, all of that enthusiasm is converted into institutional and bureaucratic inertia as lots of stakeholders pile in, budgets get cut, everybody wants the say. 
the timelines and the calendars all go out of skew and it's too late to build something really special for the campaign. So I'd say the risk averse nature of, of for brands is um, very much in play from a content moderation point of view, but it's the same as it always been in terms of levels of pure uh, adventurousness and uh, tenacity and what's the word I'm looking for? Audaciousness. They've always been moderated by the bureaucracy of business in general. And I'm not singling out any brand and I'm not even singling out the advertising industry. I'm sure there are plenty of people across the world of business who've had ideas stymied or, um, you know, uh, um, just, you know, the fire taken out of it by the inherent flaws in the way that business is conducted. Yeah. And um, the, the, the word that I, I often um, use is courage in media, actually being brave when it comes to mm. innovating um, or taking a stand, if you like, against the potential ire of the Twitter mob. And it's it's one of the values which is core to the media leader. Um, some people kind of privately ask me, well, what does courage mean? That sounds a bit fluffy, but actually it speaks exactly to what you've just been speaking about in doing something differently to resist that inertia, as you put it, which is all too common. Last question. What advice would you have for people who want to work in media, advertising or marketing, who maybe, you know, they may be interested in this industry, but they don't, they don't have the contacts, they don't have the knowledge and, you know, every, everything we're speaking about seems quite um, potentially complicated. It's not like the old days where we just, you know, make some ads and all the rest of it and everything's on telly. It's, it's so much more complicated than that. Um, what advice would you have for people coming into this industry? Well, I think the contacts thing is really, really important, actually. And I think that, you know, it sounds easy for me to say, but it's to build contacts. And I don't know how, you know, there's no easy and fast rule in order to do that. Um, we know that, um, you know, if they're interested in it and they're already working within a discipline, um, sorry, if they're already starting to make that journey by um, uh, studying at a college or being involved in an institution um, that has those connections, it's to exploit those connections. It's to have a body of work. It's to have opinions. It's to, it's to have something to show people and to connect, to share it with. Um, I don't think that, you know, the way that I got into advertising is I um, wrote off to every advertising agency in London and three or four of them, this was 20, nearly 25 years ago, three or four of them got in touch and I went in for an interview. And then, you know, the one that I managed to get, that's where I started work, but I had no pr prior um, experience and I didn't necessarily have anything to show them to, as, as, as a proof point for my ability in, in, in the arena. And I think in the era of social media that's changed you've got to have something that you've made produced written created um fronted up presented particularly in in today's era and you have to make sure that the, you know that you have a body of work and um in order to act your calling card and make sure you are networked with as many people as possible um, and it's not necessarily because that that um that the act of networking will necessarily get you um uh, a, a job is more the fact that being seen to be networked is itself an accolade. It shows that you you understand the way that mod, the modern advertising agency works, which is it's about contacts and it's about relationships and connections and like, almost like synapses in a brain. And you've got to send little parcels of information across those synapses in order in order to get what you need. Okay, Phil Rowley is head of futures at Omnicom Media Group. Thanks very much for joining the media leader. Thank you, Omar. Thanks again for listening to the Media Leader podcast. And there's more of where that came from on our website. The-media-leader.com is our website. You can sign up to our daily newsletter in the UK and weekly roundup of media in the US. 
You can also find us on YouTube where we are posting video interviews and clips from our live events, our LinkedIn page where people like to comment on the things that we're posting, and Twitter where all our stuff is pretty much pumped out like a beautiful fountain of media industry content. That's it. Catch you next time. Bye-bye.